The text for our sermon this morning is Job 34, verses 23 and 24. As for the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore, men fear Him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. This time, we'd like to call the kids to the front for the children's sermon. On the verses that we just read, we heard these words. As for the Almighty, and that means God, we cannot find Him out. We cannot understand God as He is because He is so great. But the very next words are, He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. And that means that we can know a lot about God. We just can't understand all these things fully. This morning, we're going to learn something about God that is easy to say, hard to explain, and impossible to fully understand. It's easy to say because the Bible tells us, so we can just use the same words that the Bible uses. It's hard to explain because God is God and we're just His creatures. And it's impossible to fully understand because God is greater than us. He is so much greater that the only things we can understand are the things the Bible says. And even those things we can only understand as creatures. So, what's this thing about God that's easy to say, hard to explain, and impossible to fully understand? Well, it's that there is only one true God and that this one only true God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus taught us to pray to God, our Father, right? And Jesus calls Himself the Son, and He taught us to baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. One name, but three persons. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, it's easy to say because that's what the Bible tells us. Now, the shortcut for all of that is the word Trinity. And the word Trinity is a combination of the word tri, which means three, and the word unity, which means one. So there are three things that I, three things that I want to explain. Number one, God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number two, God, or each person is fully God. And number three, there is only one God. Now, God is not one person and three persons, and God is not one God and three gods. No, the Trinity means that God is one, one God in three persons. Now, how can He be three but only one. Well, when God made you, He made you one human being living as one person. A human being is what you are. A person is who you are. But God isn't like us. There is no one else like God. The biggest difference between us and God is that we exist as one human being living as one person. But God exists as one God living in three persons. The persons are all different. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And yet all three persons are fully God. Each person fully possesses the being of God. And that's the one way that God is completely different from us. We exist 
as only one person, but He exists as three. See, I told you it could be hard to explain, but it is impossible to fully understand. God is so great that we can't understand everything about Him. If we could understand everything about God, then we would be as wise as He is. The most important part about being a Christian is believing what God has said about Himself. If you don't believe what the Bible tells you about God, then it's impossible to be saved and go to heaven because not believing the Bible is like calling God a liar. God tells us about Himself in the Bible, and everything He tells us in the Bible is true. But what He tells us, He tells us in a way that our little minds can understand it and believe. And even when we can't understand, we still believe because God doesn't lie. Well, I want you to listen carefully to the rest of the sermon, and after we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it till we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Well, I want to open the sermon this morning with a quote from Hilary of Poitiers, one of the great Trinitarian theologians of the fourth century. He wrote, There can be no comparison between God and earthly things. Yet, the weakness of our understanding forces us to seek for illustrations from a lower sphere to explain our meaning about loftier themes. The course of daily life shows how our experience in ordinary matters enables us to form conclusions on unfamiliar subjects. We must therefore regard any comparison as helpful to man rather than as descriptive of God, since it suggests rather than exhausts the sense that we seek. Now that'll be our watchword this morning as we proceed. Many people imagine that preaching on the Trinity must be very difficult because there's such little, little scriptural data. The opposite is, in fact, true. The most difficult part about preparing this sermon was deciding what to leave out. Evidence of the Trinity is overwhelming in Scripture. It's literally found everywhere, as I trust you will soon see. Now, in nearly all my sermons, we've gone straight from the actual texts of the Scripture to the sermon's contents itself. And that's because sermons aren't inspirational talks with a Bible verse tacked on to give them some semblance of authority. Sermons are meant to be careful exposition of the text of Scripture. Now, there are two ways that the Bible teaches its doctrines. The first is by direct statements. And the second is by good and necessary inference, deduction. Scripture says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we take that literally as doctrine. But then as we read other passages of Scripture, we realize that this direct statement implies other things as well. For instance, Jesus tells us that to lust in the heart is the same sin. Coital union with someone who, other than your lawful spouse, is one form of that sin. Lust in the heart is another form. And so while the seventh commandment doesn't explicitly 
or specifically state every form of the sin, we learn it from other places in Scripture. Another illustration to show what I mean by this principle of deduction. The five books of Moses are full of descriptions and regulations about sacrifices. Then Jesus comes along and He says, Moses spoke of me. Now this tells us, not by direct statement from Exodus or Leviticus, but by necessary inference from Jesus' own words, that the sacrificial system of which Moses wrote was really about Jesus. The New Testament frequently teaches doctrine by direct statement, and the Old Testament does so by real-life illustrations in the history that it records. So when we say that the Old Testament teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, we're not taking New Testament ideas and shoehorning them into the Old. We're not imposing new and foreign meanings into passages of the Old Testament, which luckily lend themselves to a Trinitarian interpretation. That would be abuse of Scripture. The Old Testament teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, and it does so knowingly. Now, the revelation of the Bible's doctrines, yes, it grows clearer with time. But that is not the same thing as saying that the doctrines clearly taught later were not known earlier. Now, our text this morning reminds us of the proper attitude toward God and His Word. We must always assume a posture of humility. However much we may truly know about God, and I emphasize that word truly know, He is still infinitely greater than what we know. That does not make our knowledge false or unnecessary. It just makes it small. If the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us nothing else, it teaches us humility. Because we're brought face to face with a being that we cannot comprehend. We can line up everything He says about Himself, and we can codify that into workable creeds. But the nature of God remains eternally outside the grasp of our finite minds. If we could understand God's essence, we would be equal to Him. And that is what our text literally declares. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. Since we are preaching from the book of Job, we are going to look at statements made within this book and things that we read in the first ten chapters of Genesis, since we have repeatedly asserted the things recorded in Genesis 1-10 to were known to Job. And then we will bring in other scriptural arguments as well. The extraordinarily long lives of the patriarchs was a safeguard against corruption of God's revelation before any scripture was written. God protected His Word by keeping a direct line between these men. When Job spoke with Noah, he wouldn't hear accounts of creation, Adam, the fall, and the flood that were passed through ten generations like a thousand-year game of telephone. Noah knew, Noah's father knew Adam personally. And sure, Lamech's father could tell him about Adam, but Adam was still living, and if anyone got a detail wrong, Adam was alive to correct him. And so the revelation would never turn into a game of telephone. And that's why I've argued that Job was written when it happened and was likely written by Eliphaz. Job's era was an era of shortening lifespans. He lived something over 200 years. Abraham thinks it's too late to have a son at 100 And Jacob's 147 is considered extraordinary. In Psalm 90, Moses says, The years of our life are 70. 
or by reason of strength, 80. God committed His Word to writing as men's lifespans shortened so that we wouldn't be left to a game of telephone. And that's why I believe Job was the first book written. It preserved all the revelation men had of God. Now, I haven't been beating around the bush. We'll come to our subject directly. Our outline is, number one, the scriptural testimony. Number two, scriptural demonstration. And number three, the doctrinal centrality. So first of all, the scriptural testimony. Now, the first thing to realize is that much more is conveyed in the original languages than we might notice in translations. If I were to translate Genesis 1-1 literally, you would find some very weird phrasing. The Hebrew word for God in that text is Elohim, and that is a masculine noun but in plural form. Elohim is the plural form of the word Eloah. However, the verb for create is third-person masculine singular. Now, if I translated that literally, it would read God's creates, but that's incorrect grammar. It should either be God's create or God creates. And this grammatical construction is not unique to Genesis 1.1. It occurs every single time the name of God is used in Scripture. A plural masculine noun is partnered with a singular masculine verb. And if I translated it literally that way, you'd doubt my knowledge of the language. But what is the point of this unusual feature? It conveys something about the essence of God. It tells us that in the singular Godhead, there exists a plurality of persons in such a way that all the acts, thoughts, intentions, and desires proceed from a single will. And therefore, God is one in essence. The Trinity does not mean that there are three gods, but that this God who is one is manifestly three. The word Trinity is a portmanteau word formed from joining tri, meaning three, and uni, meaning one. How do we arrive, though, at the number three? God's essence is spoken of in the Bible under three terms. First of all, we have the word God. Secondly, we have references to the Word of God in which qualities of personhood are attributed to this Word. And therefore, it's not merely something that God vocalized, but it is a person who acts, thinks, and wills as God and yet is distinct from God the Father. In several cases, the things attributed to this Word are also equally attributed to a person called the Son. Even in the Old Testament, there is reference to the Son of God as a person distinct from the Father. And therefore, we understand that there are two persons, God and God's Word. The two persons are distinct and yet one. But there's also a third term that the Scripture uses, and it is the Hebrew word ruach, which is rendered breath or spirit in English. And we find qualities of personhood attributed to this person, this spirit. So whenever we read of the Spirit of God, we're reading of the Holy Spirit as a person distinct from the Father and the Son, yet equally and truly God in very essence. Now all the things that I've just said are to be found in the book of Job. Every time Job speaks of God, every time Job's friends speak of God, every time God speaks of Himself, we find these features. We find masculine nouns 
or pronouns that are plural in form, but conjugated as singulars by singular verbs every single time. And that's something that's just lost in translation. Now, one of the most astounding things about this fact is that in the ancient world, and Israel in particular, there was an almost incurable proclivity to polytheism, that is, the belief in many gods. God was revealing something about His nature, that His singular divine essence subsists in a plurality of persons, but He was also dissuading His people from polytheistic ideas about Himself. They were never to think of God as multiple, as if there were more than one God. And despite the fact that Israel was incorrigibly attracted to polytheism, God did not hide the truth about His triune nature. And that's because the solution to a problem is never overreaction. So when I stand here and say that the doctrine of the Trinity was known to Job because it was known to the patriarchs from Noah back to Adam, I'm sure that that statement will be met with some raised eyebrows. But I'm also here to tell you that until about 120 years ago, with the onset and onslaught of liberal theology, no one in his right mind would have disputed that assertion. Now, one quick detail. Scripture reveals God to us under the name Elohim, but Elohim, plural noun, is not His proper name. It's His title. His proper name is Jehovah. Elohim is a plural noun, whereas Jehovah is singular. And this indicates the simultaneously singular yet plural nature of God. And these words occur next to each other over and over again, many times side by side or within the same verse. In Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we find this to be the case. Verse 6, we read of the sons of Elohim, plural, presenting themselves before God. And Satan comes too. And Jehovah, singular, Jehovah addresses Satan and says to him, Have you seen my, singular, my servant Job? There is none like him, a blameless man who fears Elohim, plural. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this reveals something about God's nature. He can be spoken of in plural form, yet he is still singular in essence. And it isn't just here in the introduction to Job where we see this. Throughout the book, in the speeches of the five men, this form of speaking is consistently and constantly used. Now, the $64,000 question, where did Job and his friends learn to speak about God this way? except from Shem and Noah, who had learned it from every patriarch back to Adam. In Genesis 1.1, actually 1 through 3, we'll see what I mentioned earlier about the three forms of referring to God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, we read, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we see two persons, the Father and the Spirit. And then in verse 3, we see the agent of of creation, which is God's Word. And God said, let there be light. So we have God, the Spirit, and the Word. Three persons, yet clearly one God. Now, I might be reaching, but the phrase, and God said, occurs ten times in the creation account in Genesis. Might that not be a hat tip to the Ten Commandments, the ten words? Creation is ordered according to God's eternal law. 
Farther down in Genesis 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Now, we must pay close attention to the grammar. Elohim, plural, says, Let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image, singular, according to our, plural, likeness, singular. So, while God speaks of Himself with plural pronouns such as us and our, the image of God and His likeness are not plural, but singular. In verse 27, we read, in the image, singular, of Elohim, plural, He created Him. Male and female, He, God, singular, created them. In Genesis 1.26, in Genesis 3.22 and 11.7, God uses the plural pronoun us with reference to Himself, and each time the accompanying verb is singular in form. In later scriptures, we find this pattern expanded to the other names that God uses to describe Himself. In Joshua 24, verse 29, we read, Elohim, plural, He is a holy God. Ecclesiastes 12, 1, remember thy creators. In Isaiah 54, 5, thy makers are thy husbands. In Obadiah 21, then saviors shall come to Mount Zion. And yet the Old Testament saints, addicted as Israel was to polytheism, they never construed these verses as implying that there's more than one God or that Scripture contains contradictions. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Literally, listen Israel, Jehovah Elohim is one Jehovah. The Hebrew word rendered one is the word echad, which does not refer to number count, but to uniqueness. The Lord our God is solitary Lord. Secondly, the scriptural demonstration. And what I want to do now is give you a short demonstration from Scripture of the ways in which God's triune essence is revealed to us. Now, we've already done that to some extent when we've seen how God uses the plural title Elohim, but always partners it with singular verbs. But there are other ways as well. In Genesis 3.8, we read, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, that passage equates the voice of Jehovah Elohim with Jehovah Elohim Himself. The voice was walking. That voice is a reference to the Word of God, which is, therefore, a reference to Christ. This is the first of the so-called theophanies. Now, a theophany is an appearance of God the Son in visible human form before His incarnation. Many times in the Old Testament, Jesus appeared to the patriarchs in physical form before His incarnation. And in these instances, we know that it is the second person of the Trinity because He's often referred to as the angel of the Lord. And angel means sent one. John 3.16 tells us that God the Father sent God the Son. Now, Adam and Eve hear the Son of God walking in the garden, and they hide themselves in shame. And the Hebrew literally reads, they heard the voice of Jehovah Elohim walking in the garden. Now, we frequently read something very similar to this in the prophets. They often write, the word of the Lord came to me and said, 
Jesus, in a pre-incarnation form, appeared to the prophets and dictated to them His messages to the church. Scripture constantly speaks this way. Now, here's what I find very interesting. In Exodus 9, God says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up to show my power in you. I want you to notice that it is God who spoke to Pharaoh. In Romans 9, though, when Paul cites this passage, he writes, Scripture says to Pharaoh. Paul literally equates the Word of God with God. Now, we're not saying that Jesus is the Bible incarnate, but rather that the Bible is the very Word of God and carries the very same authority as Jesus Himself. So that when a person disregards something Scripture says, that person is disregarding Jesus, who is the Word of God. In Psalm 33, 6, we read earlier, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of His mouth. That I want you to notice the Trinitarian structure of that passage. First, we have the Lord. Secondly, we have the Word. And thirdly, we have the breath of His mouth, which in Hebrew is ruach, the very same word as spirit. So we have God, the Word, and the Spirit. Ten centuries before John pens his gospel saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we have David attributing qualities and prerogatives of God to the Word and to the Spirit, and referring to the second person of the Trinity as the Word. Now that passage in Psalms has a very close parallel in the book of Job, chapter 33 also, but verse 4, which says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job's friend Elihu says the same thing David will pen centuries later. And in both passages, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as distinct from God, yet as God. The divine power of creation and life are attributed to the Spirit, thus recognizing Him as God while speaking of Him as a person who is distinct. In Exodus 3, verse 3, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and there is no doubt that this is Jehovah. Moses is commanded to take off his shoes because he's standing in the presence of God. The angel of the Lord speaking to Moses out of the bush says that his name is Jehovah. And in verse 6, the angel says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew and worshipped God as three persons in one. And they worshipped Jesus. Forty years later, as Joshua is about to lead Israel into battle against Jericho, he's out assessing the terrain and he sees a man with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua approaches and asks, Are you with us or with our enemies? And the man answers, No, I am the captain of the army of God. Take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. This is the same person who appeared to Moses. This is Jesus appearing in his rightful role as commander of his church. 
Many times later, we find that the angel of the Lord appears to the Old Testament saints. And in all those cases, we find this same language. The angel is distinct from God, yet is God. And in many cases, the things which are predicated of the angel of the Lord are predicated of the Word of God and of the Son of God. And this tells us that the second person of the Trinity is called the Son of God because He's eternally generated of the Father. He's called the Word of God because by Him all things were made. And He's called the Angel of the Lord because He is the Anointed of God sent into the world for our salvation. Now I wanted to point all that out because this same language pops up everywhere in Job. In Job 1.6 and in 2.1, which will be our text for next Sunday, we read of sons of God. Now that gives us a clue about something. God is an eternal spirit. So that those whom he calls sons have their sonship by a very specific relation to him. He has deemed it right to call them sons. They have no right in themselves to arrogate that title. But it also hints that there must be a natural son of God who is the mediator by which they attain right to be known as sons of God. And that is the uniform teaching of Scripture. Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. In Job 4.9, we read of God's Holy Spirit as the agent who ratifies God's relational status among men. And this too is the uniform teaching of Scripture. Throughout the New Testament epistles, the work of the Holy Spirit is always considered in conjunction with the work of the Son. Question 20 of our catechism tells us that the Holy Spirit applies Christ and His benefits to us. We are considered as sons of God because we are engrafted into Christ, the true Son of God. I want to conclude this point of the sermon with the baptismal formula which Christ gives us in Matthew 28, verse 19. He says, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We notice instantly that he says name, not names. However, there are three prepositional phrases that modify that one noun name. We read, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Greek literally has the words and and of. This isn't just, you know, a relic of an awkward, older way of speaking English. Jesus does not say the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does not say the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says the name, singular. And it's not just any name. It has the definite article, the, the name. Moreover, it's the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The single name is predicated of three persons. 1 John 5, 7, we read earlier, literally declares that. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Now I want to turn our attention to our third point, the doctrinal centrality. The doctrine of the Trinity is the epitome of the Christian faith. It not only presents us with a lofty subject of contemplation, but it provides rest and comfort to the heart and to the conscience. When we look at the doctrine of the Trinity from a practical view, 
we find that this doctrine is absolutely essential to the church. Every other doctrine of the faith runs up against the doctrine of the Trinity at some point, and therefore all heresies will be found at bottom to be Trinitarian heresies. The plan of salvation is unfolded to us in Scripture in a Trinitarian way. The Father chooses whom He will save. The Son atones for those chosen by the Father. And the Holy Spirit applies Christ and His benefits to those souls. The entire plan of salvation falls apart if this doctrine, the keystone of the arch, is dislodged. Our catechism literally tells us this. The creed is divided into three sections. Of God the Father in our creation, of God the Son in our redemption, and of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Now we are obligated to believe what God has condescended to declare. There is no greater loyalty than loyalty of the intellect. We believe what God says because God says it, not because we necessarily understand it. God's greatness surpasses our comprehension, and therefore refusing to believe what God says about Himself is a demonstration of the spirit of pride, the very pride that made the devil the devil. The objection to the Trinity on the grounds of its immeasurable mystery, that has been raised in every generation. Well, how can I, how can I be asked to accept a doctrine as indispensable to my salvation when I can't even comprehend it? Let me say this. Had there been no mystery, these very same opponents would make the opposite objection. Oh, I can't accept that. Religion is too simplistic. If there is nothing in the Christian faith that transcends human intellect, on what grounds can it make its claim to heavenly origins? Ah, anybody could dream that up. In conclusion, you do not need to be a genius to realize that something which is never taught or preached is either not important or not true. So how are professing Christians to believe that the Trinity is true and that even if it is true, it matters if they never hear the doctrine preached? Well, the simple answer is they won't. Why then is the Trinity such a neglected doctrine? And it's my considered opinion that the neglect lies in our sinful proclivity to self-righteousness. The only doctrines that we value are the ones from which we can derive a moral application. Every time we read the Bible, instead of seeing what God has done for us in Christ, we ask, well, what do I got to go do? That's the law. That's not the gospel. The law says, do this and live. Whereas the gospel says, live because God has done this for you. Now, because the doctrine of the Trinity is a truth about God, it is of infinite importance. And that for two reasons. First of all, God must be distinguished from false gods. God must be worshipped as He has revealed Himself to us, and He has revealed Himself to us as triune. Anyone who denies the Trinity, therefore, is an idolater. Secondly, you cannot be saved and not know God. No one is saved without knowledge of the Father. But the Father is not known without the Son. Scripture says, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. 
No one is saved without faith in the Son. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And no one is saved without knowledge of the Spirit. Scripture says, If any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. No one receives the Spirit without knowing Him. For Christ says, The Spirit whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him. It is necessary then that for anyone to be saved, he must know God as the triune God. And therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity is not just one point among many, but rather the very essence of Christianity itself. Well, let us pray. 